2: I think the 20th Amendment strongly suggests that there actually isn't a constitutional barrier in, in the failure to qualify circumstances for, for the Speaker of the House or the President pro tempore to become the acting president. But it sets up a different set of perverse incentives than if it was just the cabinet officials. That's why I think probably what makes the most sense is to separate out um, the scenarios addressed by the 20th Amendment from those addressed by Article 2, which, again, for political and policy reasons, it also makes sense in my mind to treat separately and set up separate rules for the two, you know, in my mind, handing over the presidency to cabinet officials or whoever makes sense when it's an interruption in the middle of a presidential term. But if you're talking about between elections, you've got to come up with a separate system that doesn't present perverse political incentives. And that's when the mechanisms I talk about, which are you know handing it over to nonpartisans or through a process that's not clear to give authority to a potentially a co-partisan of the majority of the
3: House, makes a lot more sense in my mind i um, Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 18th, 2022. Scott R. Anderson is a senior editor at Lawfare and a fellow at Brookings, as well as a senior fellow with the National Security Law Program at Columbia Law School. But most importantly, for our purposes, he's the author of a new Politico magazine piece raising an often overlooked vulnerability in the presidential election system. A lot of attention after January 6th and November 2020 has rightly gone to the Electoral Count Act and other similar reforms. But Scott argues that if Congress really wants to protect the presidency, it can't just reform the process for counting electoral votes. I sat down with Scott to talk about its political article and to take a step back and look at the broader landscape of electoral reforms in the aftermath of 2020. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 18th. Scott Anderson on an overlooked presidential election vulnerability. All right, so Scott, before we get into what you'd written, I think it might be helpful just to go over like what is the Electoral Count Act and why all of a sudden are there so so many people who are interested in the ECA? Yeah, absolutely. The Electoral Count Act was a statute that Congress enacted
2: in 1887 that essentially regulates the process for counting electoral votes, sets up a set of presumptions about timing for when states reach certain results and communicate those results via their governor or via other mechanisms to Congress that installs certain presumptions, rules for how the session that is used between the House and the Senate to collectively count The electoral votes is run, procedures for debating different types of motions that might come up in those proceedings. And so it's been on the books for more than a century now, well more than a century, and has become controversial recently because ambiguities in that statute and how it's worded, uh, it's written in a very late 19th century way that is not always super precise, (laughs) to say the least. And then tensions, or at least perceived or alleged tensions, between that statute and the Constitution's policies for and requirements for counting electoral votes were issues raised at various times by supporters of President Trump around the counting of the 2020 electoral votes as part of the effort to turn the results in his favor— Most specifically by having Vice President Mike Pence, who as Vice President played a leading role in overseeing that process and claimed, or at least in some people's views, had certain authority he could have used or maybe could have used, although many people dispute whether this is actually the case, to change how certain disputed ballots are are voted or change the timing or refer it back to the states and take a bunch of other different hypothetical measures um, that people think would have benefited former President Trump. That rule, set of rules about governing that session have become the focus of a lot of attention because people say, well, we need to fix these rules so that we can prevent this sort of manipulation of the counting process
3: from happening again in the future. And so you, you know, you, you argue that that maybe that's important, but give us the the thrust of your, your piece in Politico.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the very real and serious bipartisan effort that's going on to reform the Electoral Count Act. That's absolutely important and essential. Frankly, people have been talking about the then-hypothetical risk the Electoral Count Act could pose in the case of a narrow and hotly disputed election for decades. 2020 was just the year, right, early 2021, I suppose, was just the year that everything really came to a head most clearly. And it's good that people are motivated to fix that. But what I try and do in the piece I published in Politico is to push reformers a little further and to say that some of the big problems in this process aren't located within the parameters of the Electoral Count Act itself and aren't just about the process for counting electoral uh, votes that is administered by the House. There's also a problem that arises In the circumstances around that process, basically what happens if that process never takes place or breaks down at some point and never reaches its result. Specifically, my my argument that I raise here is that there are avenues by which a majority of really either chamber, but I talk primarily about the House for reasons we'll get to in a second could seek to derail the process for counting electoral votes, which is usually done through this joint session of the House and the Senate, either by just not showing up or refusing to approve the concurrent resolution that's usually used to enter into that session. And by not participating, there becomes a very serious question as to whether any electoral votes that are counted are actually counted before the House and the Senate, which is what is required by the 12th Amendment to determine who is then the president and vice president-elect, who has won the election, essentially. And if you don't have a clear idea about who's won the election, then on January 20th, the incumbent president and vice president's terms end by constitutional mandate. There's no way around that. There's no flexibility for Congress to extend that in the Constitution. But what happens at that point is unclear. The 20th Amendment essentially gave Congress the authority to establish a statute saying, well, here's what happens when there's a gap in the presidency and the vice presidency in a variety of circumstances, Um, specifically in a case like this where there's a failure to qualify as the language used by the 20th Amendment. And Congress has enacted this law in 1947 called the Presidential Succession Act that lines out a line of succession for a variety of circumstances, not just if there's a failure to qualify, also if the president and vice president are both killed, if they're disabled, if something else happens that There's a vacancy in both offices. And what it basically says is that the presidency then passes on an acting basis to the Speaker of the House, and then the President pro tempore of the Senate, and then an array of cabinet officials, assuming they meet the constitutional qualifications and a couple of other caveats there. What I point out is that this puts the majority of the House in a potentially empowered position, because not only do they have the authority to potentially end or interrupt the process for counting electoral votes in a presidential election year, they can then appoint who becomes Speaker of the House. That's a person who's elected by a simple majority of the House under the House rules and isn't actually required by the rules to even be a member of the House, can be anyone in the country, um, although it always has been a member of the House to date. And that once they elect that person as Speaker of the House and they refuse to get together to count the electoral votes, that person then becomes the acting president on January 20th. Uh, the scenario specifically, what I discuss here, why I think it's actually something that people should be thinking about right now, although I agree it's very unlikely, but but again, I, I think it's hard to judge what's likely and what's not these days, uh, in these kind of unprecedented political times, is because of course a majority of the House is the thing that is most likely to be controlled by the supporters of President Trump, and we've already heard many supporters of President Trump discuss the possibility of electing him as Speaker if he were to be elected to the House. So in 2022, if that happens, or early 2023 when the new Congress sets, that wouldn't make that big a difference. It'd be politically significant, but maybe not legally significant. But in 2025, when the new Congress uh, sets and when President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris's terms constitutionally come to an end, that same authority, in theory, could be used to put
3: President Donald Trump back in the White House, at least on an acting basis. So we'll dive into the specifics here and what can be done to to preempt this concern but i i wonder if you could just like take a step back for a minute and you had this line in in your piece that sort of the focus on the ECA and generally some of the some of the the like direction of travel for you know reaction to 2020 reforms is fighting what you would call like the last war right as opposed to preparing for what's going to happen in 2024 could you talk a bit about that i thought that was like an interesting way of thinking about your your suggestion here
2: You know, we have a challenge in policymaking and legislating in this country. It's not unique to us. Lots of countries wrestle with it, which is that we have, but I I will say, you know, the United States system where we have a lot of checks and balances that make legislating really hard work, a very high barrier to entry into new legislation, essentially, makes it really hard to get the political consensus together to make progress on a particular issue, and to put it to the top of the agenda, to compete with all the other things that Congress could and and should be doing. And so often that puts us in the position of saying, well, we see some crisis has happened or is imminently about to happen, and that's really what it takes to push something to the fore. And that's really what's been happening lately with Electoral Count Act reform. Like I said, people have been talking about the need to do these reforms for the last 20, 30 years, if not longer. Some of the seminal Law Review articles are from, from many, many years ago that delve into all the possibilities about how the act can be interpreted and read. But it's really only come to the fore now because people live through 2020 and now it's very on top of mind. But because of this reactive nature of a lot of our policymaking, people tend to focus on trying to address the problems that they've already seen in practice, even when those aren't the problems that are most likely to arise in a future scenario. And I think the electoral count reform debate is actually really part of that process, at least if you're if you're thinking ahead to 2024, the next presidential election. A lot of the things that President Donald Trump's supporters tried to do to keep him in office were contingent upon the fact that Vice President Mike Pence was sitting over and convening over the process for counting electoral votes. That puts him in a position that some people say gives him the constitutional authority to really direct a lot of how that proceeding runs. I'm very dubious of those arguments. I think there's very good reason to be very dubious, but those arguments were a big part of the strategy that people had and that Vice President Mike Pence, to his credit, refused to go along with for saying, here's how we can tip things in Trump's favor. The thing is, Vice President Mike Pence, of course, isn't going to be convening over the county of electoral votes in 20, early 2025 from the 2024 election. Um, that is actually going to be Vice President Kamala Harris. Now, maybe there's reason that Republicans should be concerned that Democrats will flip the playbook and then start doing similar manipulations to prevent a Republican president from entering the White House. I hope not. And and frankly, I think there's actually a strong institutional commitment to core democratic institutions and the Democratic leadership. And, and so I'd be very surprised if something like that happened. But that's that's the more likely factual scenario than somebody manipulating a lot of these things to put President Trump back into office, or whoever the Republican candidate might be, because that party is not going to be in control of the vice presidency. You have to think about, well, what are, at least for this coming year, what are the institutions that they're going to be in a position to control that might give them influence to push this? If we really do have this anti-democratic strain, which I should emphasize is a a minority of the Republican Party, and, and, and not all Republicans should be necessarily painted with that brush, but there is that sort of strain among supporters of President Trump. And if We're serious about that threat. We have to think about, well, what tools are they going to have in 2024 and 2025 and beyond? And at least for that next election, 2024, 2025, the majority of the House strikes me as some of the lowest hanging fruit for them to acquire control over. Doesn't mean it's necessarily likely or that they could get a majority of the House to completely go along with such an aggressive scheme as the one that I kind of lay out in this article. But if you're really trying to say, well, here are the big issues that we want to strengthen our election, not just all elections in the future, but also our next election, you have to think a little more more broadly, not just to the scenario that we just lived through, which is very unlikely to repeat, but the other possible scenarios that might come into play. And this one, I, I argue, should be on this list as saying we need to revisit some of these broader structures outside the context of the Electoral Count Act, outside of just the counting electoral votes, but to the broader process, and shore those up as well. Because in some ways, those actually might be a bigger point of concern in 2024 and 2025. And if nothing else, we are if we're entering a moment where there's the political will to get this done, which is rare and doesn't come along that often,
3: we should try and address all of the chinks in our armor that we can. So how would you go about addressing them, right? Like what are the ways – walk us through some of the ways that you might shore up the – insulate the, the line of presidential succession in these types of cases. Sure. You know, there, there's two kind of elements or sides of the
2: scheme here, right? And one is this question of the ability to derail the electoral vote counting process. And I think there are limits to what you can do to fix that. Because a lot of it comes down to the 12th Amendment. 12th Amendment says that the electoral votes need to be counted before the House and Senate. Now, some people will debate what exactly that means. Does that mean it needs to be a majority of the House and Senate, which is what the Constitution says is necessary for either chamber to do business, whatever doing business means, right? Right. You know, some people might argue, well, you know, if you often both chambers operate without a full quorum in effect, unless there's a quorum call that kind of challenges the lack of quorum. So maybe this session could still sit and we can raise the threshold on being able to initiate a quorum call, a procedural measure that that tests whether there's quorum or not, and that that would allow the session to potentially proceed even if a majority of the House didn't show up or if uh, there was no approval of the concurrent resolution to sit with the session, some people say, well, look, the statute's really enough. We don't need to have separate approval concurrent resolution. People can come together and count this sort of process. So there are little things you can do there, some of which are in the Electoral Count Act, some of which are not, to be a little more express and say, okay, we are going to, you know, compel that this session take place. We're not going to require concurrent resolution each time uh, to approve it. We are going to raise the threshold for being able to raise challenges or raise motions. Right now, it seems like, although there's still some ambiguity about, uh, because there's not that much practice to base it on, right now, basically to raise a challenge to a quorum, you would need a House member and a Senate member to coordinate and file a joint objection, which then the two chambers would most likely then go debate separately, you know, you could raise that threshold and say, well, no, you need a third of the House and a third of the Senate to come in. And we see some of the Electoral Count Act reform proposals do that. I think all these might be worth pursuing and are certainly worth considering for reasons unrelated to this scenario and related to this scenario. They certainly raise the bar about how easily it is to disrupt this process. But it's hard to get around that fundamental requirement in the 12th Amendment saying this has to be done before the House and Senate, in my mind. And I, I suspect that if you were to proceed with counting electoral votes without the majority of the House and Senate, again, that, that threshold the Constitution says is required to do business, you know, you are at least entering a territory where a lot of people are going to see those results as potentially less legitimate uh, constitutionally. I, don't, I kind of doubt whether the Supreme Court would stick its nose into that, um, but they might. Uh, I kind of doubt it, though. Uh, they tend to think of this as an area where Congress has a lot of authority. But, you know, that's a possibility that there could be a you know litigation to drive and validate it, or, if nothing else, popular legitimacy. The idea that, is this really consistent with the 12th Amendment? And it kind of pushes the limits of that. So there's not much you can do to get around that ultimate hub there, although, again, you can flex a little bit about the process. What I focus is on the back end. What happens after January 20th, again, the constitutionally mandated end of the incumbents, if there is a failure to qualify, if there is no one who is has uh, been qualified as the president-elect or vice president-elect to then assume uh, the position of president? And that – because that is a statute. That is clearly within Congress's authority to amend and to revise. No one's done it since 1947 despite calls for it for different reasons, which which we can get into, some of which overlap and some of which don't really apply as well here. But it's easy for Congress to think about changing that in different ways to do it. Right now, the fact that we give authority to the Speaker of the House, and then if they're not available, the president pro tempore, and then if they're not available, cabinet officials, sets up a set of perverse incentives because the House and the Senate and cabinet members are all political actors who are almost certainly members of one of the two major political parties and people for whom the majority of the House or a majority of the Senate, if the House didn't get together, because there are scenarios where a Senate could do something similar, although it's a little harder for them to do it for reasons we can get into. If, if a majority of the House has a political preference for one of these people and a strong political preference for that person, if it's, say, a member of their party and they are really opposed to get a member of the other party to assume the presidency, even if they actually won the election, that gives this political incentive to them, no matter where it kind of falls on that spectrum, to hand the authority over. There is a scenario talked about a, a bit in the 2020 elections where something similar to this, where disrupting the presidential process for selecting a president would ultimately actually put the authority to nominate a president over into this Presidential Succession Act. And then there was a question of saying, well, can it constitutionally be the Speaker of the House? Can it constitutionally be this president pro tempore? There's some people who debate that for reasons that I don't think apply here um, that we can talk about. But then the, the scenario that was discussed was, well, then it goes to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. John Yu, among others, wrote an op-ed about this in the Wall Street Journal. Although, again, I think his analysis was a little off, but he basically makes this point saying, well, then it goes to the Mike Pompeo and that's who's going to be president. The idea that, you know, Congress might prefer, particularly Republican Congress, might prefer giving the presidency to Mike Pompeo over a Democrat who elect, who won the election, you know, very well, might be the case, um, given the extreme measures we saw at least members of the Republican members of the House and Senate go to in in voting against the 2020 election results in early 2021. So, I think the only way to get around this really is to set up a presidential succession process, at least in cases of failure to qualify, where you have a failed election. I actually think you can probably and probably should deal with deaths of presidents in office and incapability and incapacitation separately, because it's just a very different political scenario where you already have an an elected administration in place. But if you are dealing with a situation of a failed election, of failure to qualify of one of these candidates, you know, I would argue maybe we should have a process that tries to take away those political incentives by giving the presidency to either a set of nonpartisan actors, these could be senior career civil servants, or somebody else who is, while there's no true nonpartisans, are less partisan and have worked with members of both parties at a very high level over their career. You could set up a lottery system or a rotating system so that there's less certainty about who actually ends up as the acting president. And therefore, there's less confidence that disrupting the process will tilt the results in the direction of whoever the majority of the House might prefer. Um, You could set up, again, a, a system that is rotating over time so that every month there's a new acting president, or maybe there's a trio of acting presidents that has to govern by uh a, you know majority vote none of these are optimal solutions from the perspective of governing but remember this is supposed to be a very temporary solution just until the results of the prior election can be finalized and you can get over whatever procedural issues are in the way so in light of that you know some of these options that might be suboptimal from governing actually might make a lot of sense to avoid perverse incentives to use this as an alternative route
4: to the white house
0: if i could offer you an extra hour a day in your life what would you do with it would you go for a run would you sleep in would you read would you go hang out with a friend a lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself it's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority And that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about, but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Lawfare 20. All
3: right, Scott. So give us like a, a bit clearer sense of what the constitutional issues here might be. Drill down on that for a little. So on the uh, front
2: end, as we talked about a, a a little bit, you have the 12th Amendment requirement that the electoral vote votes be counted before the House and the Senate. You then have the January 20th firm cutoff of the end of the election time. So, So we've kind of covered the constitutional terrain for the first half of this equation, the equation that gets you up to the failure of the presidential counting process. Presidential succession happens in another somewhat contested constitutional terrain. The Presidential Succession Act that's been in place since 1947, as I mentioned, really sets up a line of succession that applies regardless of what happens to the president or vice president or specifically it encompasses a lot of scenarios so it's death disability you know impeachment and then this lack of qualification you know what happens if there is no one who's who's qualified to become president who's been who's kind of uh, survived the electoral vote count and and, and risen to that status Those scenarios have all been bundled together by Congress in 1947, this one chain of succession that then goes goes Speaker to President Pro Tempore to the various cabinet members down the line. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case because there's actually two different sets of constitutional rules and constitutional assignments of authority to Congress to establish lines of succession. Article two, as it's been amended a little bit, basically says, okay, we are going to give Congress the authority to establish what happens in cases of death or disability for the president. What happens if in the middle of a president's term, they are unable to fulfill their office, the vice presidency as well, same boat. Interestingly, those articles tie what Congress can do to the idea of officers, to to the language of officer. And a lot of people have argued, uh, Akhil Amar, professor at Yale Law School, is is the one I'm most familiar with uh, and I believe kind of has written the most widely cited article on this, but he's not the only one who's made this argument, that this provision very well should be interpreted as saying you actually can only assign presidential succession to people within the executive branch because officers is a term used elsewhere in the Constitution, although not. Hundred with hundred percent fidelity, to often mean people who are within the executive authority, and there's some structural argument there, particularly if you buy into kind of the unitary executive, strict separation of powers vision of how the federal government works, which is to say, okay, you know, you are supposed to be treating the executive branch as a separate entity, allowing it to be a constitutional option to just hand it over to. Whoever runs the Congress does seem to be maybe violate that strict separation of powers. Although again, that's not everybody buys into such a strict vision of the separation of powers, or thinks that's a, the right way to read the Constitution as requiring that as such. Regardless, there is this prevailing argument that says, okay, if even though this law says the, the succession should go to the um, Speaker of the House and President Pro Tempore, those provisions are in fact unconstitutional. Because those people are not officers within the meaning of this clause. And so at various points, numerous people have argued that the Presidential Succession Act should be reformed to take those people out of the line of succession uh, and just give it to cabinet members. If for no other reason that having them in the line of succession creates uncertainty regarding who actually assumes the presidency, because those people are constitutionally questionable. It may have to go to the Supreme Court. You may have to see it litigated out as to who has this authority. And so that becomes a point of contention. And in an emergency, which is the sort of scenario that this law is supposed to address, you don't want that uncertainty in the presidency. You want more clarity about who's going to be there. And we might as well give it to the constitutional lowest common denominator, the people no one argues are constitutionally valid. Those are executive branch officials. This argument, whatever you may think of it, in the context of of these other sorts of scenarios, I don't think actually leads into the failure to qualify line of succession, even though Congress has chosen to treat them the same through the Presidential Succession Act. The authority to establish what happens when there is a failure to qualify for the, by a president or the vice president actually is given to Congress by the 20th Amendment. And the 20th Amendment doesn't use the term officers, doesn't use the same structure at all. It really just talks about persons. Uh, and there's actually like a lot of re- reasonable reasons to think about why you would want to treat these scenarios separately. The president dies in the middle of his term. It doesn't change the fact that, you know, the people elected him and his agenda or her and her agenda for four years. It may make sense to hand authority down to the people they've appointed to execute that agenda, who are members of the same political party, um, who are on the same page, or at least a bit more similar page as to what people presumably voted for when they elected that person. That's different when you are at the end of a election where you're trying to determine what the people voted for and simply handing authority over to incumbents, meaning the people who are already in the executive branch existing officers, creates, again, these perverse incentives potentially to say, well, maybe we just never figure out who the newly elected president is and we rely on this line of succession that says we always end up with it you know, back in our court. So for that reason, in the scenario I described where it's the House of Representatives that's trying to curb things in their particular direction, you know, I think the 20th Amendment strongly suggests that there actually isn't a constitutional barrier in in the failure to qualify circumstances for, for the Speaker of the House or the President pro tempore to become the acting president. But it sets up a different set of perverse incentives than if it was just the cabinet officials, uh, which is how some people have proposed changing the Succession Act. That's why I think probably what makes the most sense is to separate out um, the scenarios addressed by the 20th Amendment from those addressed by Article 2, which again, for political and policy reasons, it also makes sense in my mind to treat separately and set up separate rules for the two. You know, In my mind, handing over the presidency to cabinet officials or whoever makes sense when it's an interruption in the middle of a presidential term. But if you're talking about between elections, you've got to come up with a separate system that doesn't present perverse political incentives. And that's when the mechanisms I talk about, which are, you know, handing it over to nonpartisans or through a process that's not clear to give authority to a potentially a co-partisan of the
3: majority of the House makes a lot more sense in my mind. So I, I want to start to zoom out a bit here, Scott. I, I wonder first if it's helpful to sort of think about this you know, there's all these different efforts to reform various things that we've seen in, in light of what happened in 2020. And you know, we, we just spent a bunch of time talking about the sort of constitutional challenges that some of this may play. We talked a bit earlier on about there's various sort of political resource challenges associated with this. What do you see as sort of the biggest, like what are the biggest obstacles to actually making headway on any one of these things? Is it that the, it's like a tricky legal terrain to navigate? Is it that there's you know, a limited amount of political will and you sort of have to be very selective about where it goes? Is it that it's actually quite hard to figure out, you know, it's actually quite hard to devise solutions to these problems? What do you see as sort of like the, what are the big obstacles to to moving forward in one way or the other?
2: So there are definitely a ton of them. (laughs) But I think in this scenario, and actually even maybe even more so for the Electoral Count Act, reforms uh, than uh, ones that are kind of the more, if you will, meta-Electoral Count Act reforms that I'm talking about that are kind of precede and succeed Electoral Count Act area of issues that it's covering. But particularly for the Electoral Count Act, y- you really need bipartisan support and buy-in for these sorts of reforms. You, you need them to be seen as broadly legitimate because they're always going to be existing under against this constitutional terrain where there are questions people can raise about, well, how much is Congress actually bound by these rules? Like how much can one Congress establish a set of rules that subsequent Congresses are obligated to abide by? So the Constitution says that both chambers have the authority to set their own rules for their proceedings. And that's generally interpreted to mean that they can determine their rules Congress to Congress. In the House's case, that means every two years, the House, because it entirely turns over every two years, votes on a new set of rules for its proceedings. For the Senate, it's often seen as a continuing body, so because only a third of the Senate turns over every two years. Um, or roughly a third, You know they have the same rules that are standing in place. They've got internal rules within that for amending it, although you do see people doing things like the quote-unquote nuclear option, um, where they kind of act on their meta-constitutional authority to introduce amendments to the rules uh, on a simple majority vote. But regardless, what all this means is that there's a real question as to whether a Congress today can pass a law that says, hey, 10 years from now, or every four years for the next... Into perpetuity, you, House and Senate, you've got to sit down and debate these things. And we're going to set real limits on the ways that you can debate them. There's a real question as to whether that's valid or not, consistent with these kind of constitutional provisions that say, you know, you are limited in how you convene these House. Now, another reform route that people could talk about is like maybe this doesn't need to be done. This kind of electoral votes before the House and Senate has to be done through a procedure that's run by Congress at all. I'm not sure it does to meet the requirements of of uh, the Constitution. But regardless, that's been the way it's been done historically. I think there's a lot of reason people see that as legitimate. People are too hesitant to break with the parts of tradition that have worked well. They want to get political buy-in on the parts that haven't worked well. And that means you got to get Republicans and Democrats on the same page. I think the reform effort we've seen so far has really been focused on that. It's been a slow cook effort, pretty beneath the surface. We've seen some reports come out, some proposals begin to come out, but there's obviously a lot of the works happening kind of behind the scenes where people are debating these ideas. And there seems to be real bipartisan buy-in, which is great. That's what you need. But getting there is slow. I think there's worries it will upset the vote. And you've got to stick to those areas of political consensus that you have. That's the reason why I think you see such a focus in part on what went wrong last time, Because it's just easier for people to wrap their heads around and build consensus around saying this was a problem. We've got to find ways to better address this and clarify this for both parties' sake moving forward. Could we both win elections uh, and and intend to win elections in the future? My hope is that this issue set would fit into that. But it does expand the scope of debate a lot. You know, presidential succession and how to handle it is a controversial topic people have different views about. I think actually segregating out the failure to qualify from the other conditions, as, as I've proposed could help fix a lot of the baggage that comes with those presidential succession debates. But nonetheless, there's a lot, I mean, years and years of debate about what the right way to handle this is. It's intertwined with ideas of executive authority and the separation of powers that not everyone agrees with and that there's a bit of a partisan valence on. Uh, And so people might be hesitant to really expand the scope to get into these issues. My hope is that they wouldn't though. I mean, a point I make in this piece is that We've actually seen multiple, multiple scenarios, uh, particularly since World War II, in which the president and the House are of different parties, even though they were both elected in the same election. And actually, the majority of those historical cases were cases where there was a Democratic House of Representatives and a Republican president, meaning an inverse of the scenario regarded with President Trump that I'm discussing potentially for 2024. You know, if that's a reality, then this. Hypothetical possibility is is I think a, a threat to both parties. I think that's that is the reality in a heightened partisan era, and so hopefully it's something that they can come to agreement on a need to address. But you know, again, it, it is a tricky debate, and the dynamics that push issues to the fore and raise them in priority don't always lend themselves to addressing scenarios that seem very much in the hypothetical as this one still does for many people.
3: That was a very good answer. All right. So it's been, I think at this point, if my math is right, like almost 18 months since the November 2020 election. It's been like 14, 15 months since January 6th. What do you feel like are sort of the lessons learned at this point? Like what can we take away from what it means to, you know, there's all sorts of bracketing, all the J6 specific stuff that we've covered at length on on lawfare. In this space, what do you feel like are sort of the the lessons learned and what can we take away from the experience so far in trying to remedy all the, the holes and the gaps? So on the one hand, I actually think it's premature.
2: You have to think of each Congress, although frankly, there's it's, it's an overlay not just of each Congress, but also of each presidential administration, each presidential term, to some extent each Senate, although Senate is a little more complicated, as kind of a separate strategic window where you're going to see people prioritize different things in different eras and different periods. New governments, particularly when you have alignment of a new Congress and a new presidential administration of the same party coming in, often have ambitious items that they feel like that they need to accomplish, often on a more party-line basis because they're more core to their policy interests, um, to their political interests, and that those often become a priority. They get interrupted by things like emergency actions, like the response to COVID in this case, like in 2008, the response to the financial crisis was was a big obsession of the Obama administration for its first few months, very understandably. But nonetheless, you see this focus on, well, we need to accomplish a couple of big items, and if we're going to have a big partisan fight, let's do it now, not down the road when it's closer to an election, and it may hurt some of our more centrist party members who are facing more contested elections if it is controversial and maybe used against them. So I don't think it's surprising, actually, that you would see items that are rely upon bipartisan coordination and, frankly, are more technical and that are of a type that's unlikely to really capture the public imagination, actually falling a little bit beneath the surface of the water and not seeing much action for these few years. Not least because when you're talking about ECA reform or, or the forms I'm talking about that are related, they don't really matter for a few years, (laughs) because they will only really kick in the next time we have a presidential election. Now, there's good reasons to get it done during this Congress, not waiting for the next Congress, because this Congress just seems to have a, you know, political consensus towards moving this forward to some extent, in part because Democrats are in the majority and and they, I think, prioritize this stuff a little bit more based off their experience in 2020. But nonetheless, you know, it means that you do have a little bit of a window to work in and you are probably going to have higher priority items at the front end. So the real time to look back at lessons is going to be probably not even after the elections later this year, um, but really after the new Congress sits on January 3rd. And we see what happens during the lame duck period, because a lot of stuff may happen with Congress in the lame duck period too. I mean, after the election results before before the new Congress sits, a new Congress that's usually around January 3rd, although it can, it can fluctuate depending on on where they schedule the date, if I recall correctly. That period is when we're going to be able to look back and say, okay, what strategically has the leadership and the administration together coordinated to accomplish in this period? if we get to the point that point where there are not some of these reforms on the books and frankly i hope not just these eca reforms hopefully some of the stuff i'm talking about makes its way into the package but reforms in a lot of other areas um, transparency reforms governance reforms ethics reforms if we really get to that point and there's nothing happening and nothing has made progress has been made then a giant opportunity has been wasted after Watergate, we saw Congress be incredibly proactive and establish lots and lots of foundational legislation, some of it quite flawed <laughs> uh, in ways that, uh, that were unanticipated and ended up defeating some of it, particularly if you think about the War Powers Resolution and some stuff in the national security space. But nonetheless, a real effort by Congress to really say some stuff really went wrong in the last few years between Vietnam and Watergate. And we are going to install laws that are trying to fix it. And a lot of ways actually have addressed the fundamental problems, if not in exactly the ways people want them to. That's what you would expect to come after an era like the last few years that we've weathered. But the simple truth is that the politics are much closer here. Um, You know, the American people did not reject Um, President Trump supporters as wholeheartedly as one might hope they did. Uh, The numbers are much closer in Congress. And so it becomes a much tricky situation. The fact that there is a real progress seems like at least being made forward on ECA reform, I think is really exceptional. Um, The people working on on both sides of the aisle deserve a lot of credit because it requires a lot of vision and a lot of time and energy focused on an issue for which there probably isn't a big political payoff, but that is essential to strengthening our democracy. And like I said, I hope these other issues also fit in that bucket and and earn some attention as well. And I'm optimistic, frankly, that we're going to get some reforms in that regard that actually will really make a difference, at least in addressing scenarios like we experienced in 2020. But we got to wait for that last moment to really make those sorts of calls. We're getting to the moment now where we see the the window closing, and we can begin to see which of these issues are going to have grab. And the fact, again, that you see ECA actually getting proposals, people are talking about it, says to me, like this thing actually looks like it has some legs to go somewhere in one form or another. Maybe not the one I would like, but one form or the other. And that's really good and a positive sign. We don't see that in a lot of other areas. Uh, Quinta Dressic, Andrew Kent, wrote an article about this in the last few weeks for Lawfare about how a lot of these other reforms have really stalled. And that's a real shame. And we're going to live with the consequences of that moving forward. But hopefully, we'll see maybe some more motion coming forward from the Democrats, particularly on that before they lose the Congress if they do, which which seems quite possible in the next election. Um, And when we look back in January 2023, we'll be able to say, oh, we actually were able to address a lot of these gaps. But right now, I think it's probably a little too soon to tell. And that is where we're going to leave it, Scott.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you like this podcast, please consider checking out the broader universe of Lawfare Podcasts. That includes our narrative podcast series, The Aftermath, includes Lawfare Noble, includes Chatter, and of course, it also includes Rational Security. I was your audio engineer this week but the podcast is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Howell, and your music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. Thanks so much for listening.